temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you might get canceled. A hundred women currently serve in the House of Representatives. That's a record. But still, women make up just 23% of the governing body. That's where Women Belong in the House comes in, from Wonder Media Network. Host Jenny Kaplan seeks to understand the state of gender representation in office and asks, how Congress would change if it looked more like the people it represents. This is a landmark election for a number of reasons, but it's also another historic year for women running for office. This season, Jenny is speaking with women who are running in some of the most contentious swing states in the country. Listen and subscribe to Women Belong in the House wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi. It's Reshma. Welcome to Brave Not Perfect, the show where we break away from perfection to live bolder, braver, and happier lives. And today's episode is coming out on a big day, election day. So if you're allowed to vote and weren't able to mail in your ballot or cast it early, please go out and vote today. It's so important. And for such a big day, I wanted to have an extra special show. I'm sitting down with, yes, the Yara Shahidi, a young activist and actor. You might know her from the hit show Blackish and its spinoff, Grownish. Yara is incredibly wise and thoughtful. We had such an eye-opening conversation in front of an audience of Girls Who Code students about bravery, the importance of challenging yourself and continuing to grow, and how young people can change the world. I'm so excited to share our conversation with you. Hello, everybody. It is so great to welcome you to this conversation with Yara. Yara, it's such an honor to have you here. Uh, We were just talking. I got to meet you and your mom uh, a few years ago, and it was still one of my favorite nights that I can remember in New York City. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I remember that night like it was yesterday, too. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll get a chance to see each other in person again soon. Hopefully, yes. So as you know, half of our girls are Black and Latinx, and they look up to you. And you're only 20 years old. And every time I read an interview that you're in, and most recently the L interview, I literally take out a notepad and I put it next to me. <laughs> and I take notes from things that you say because you are so wise and you always teach me something and you always quite frankly just 
make me be better. And I want to thank you for that. Thank you. It's true. And you are an example. We always say girls who code that like we are in good hands, that girls will literally Mm -hmm. save us. They will heal us. They will move Mm -hmm. us and they will demand that we live up to our ideals. And you are an embodiment of that. So Yara, let's get started. One of the things that I've spent the past year and a half talking about is the importance of being brave, not perfect, and the importance Mm -hmm. of embracing bravery. You are probably one of the bravest young people that I know. Where did you find your strength to do brave things? And it's scary to lead. I mean, really scary. And to speak truth to power. Like, how did you learn how to Mm -hmm. do that? Uh, Well, it's something that I quite honestly have to credit my family with just because at a very young age, I was given the space to help develop my opinion because they were asking me those questions of how I felt about the world. And even though these were just dinner table conversations, I feel like what it did was armed me with the ability to understand why I believed what I believed, how I came to my opinion, and felt really comfortable then speaking about what I believed in. But also, I think similarly, it's been about constantly being in a space of learning for me, um, which is what makes this exciting and what makes this space some place where I'm, I'm willing to speak whatever my truth is and know that my truth may change or alter. And there can be something quite intimidating at times at 20 because I am known for having a strong opinion. And yet I know there are so many things I don't know. There's so many things to learn. And so I'm constantly trying to balance the things that I'm pretty assured of and believe in to my core that are rooted in my core values and the things that I definitely have to do a deeper dive on. And uh, I constantly turn to my mentors, people in my community just to actively learn so that I can be the best I can possibly be. Again, brave, not perfect is literally what I needed to hear today because we were having this conversation yesterday about what it means to be a young girl in a very public space. And I think that doesn't just apply to me, but so many of my peers, everyone that's on here, I feel like knows what it's like to very quickly develop, especially in this day and age, a public um space, um, not a persona per se, but to have a private life and a public life. And sometimes that public life comes very quickly uh, in a way that can be hard to navigate. And so that idea of being brave but not perfect really speaks to the goal of it. It's like, you're not going to please everybody, but the importance is to stand up for what you believe in. Yeah. And what I loved what you said in the interview too, is that part of the power of having a platform is to share the mic. And how, Mm -hmm. and like the importance of sharing the mic with others. And I see you do that all the time. And I think that that's such an important lesson that you're teaching, you know, everybody uh, about what that means. You wrote this amazing essay recently. And in it, you said Mm -hmm. that you and your peers grew up alongside the digital world, a double-edged sword. And you talked Mm -hmm. about how technologies that connect us have also, like, for example, in the case of AI, been used against the most marginalized communities. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. So this is another area that I was learning more about, but particularly last year, there was that moment where I realized, one, I've had, if I'm being honest, six Tumblr accounts. I've had, I have a Twitter and Instagram. I don't know how many websites I have floating out there from school projects. Um, 
And so many of my friends and peers are actually people that I first connected with online. And uh, people that I was able to build community with wasn't based on my geography anymore, but based on what my interests were and how those connected with the people around me. And so in that vein, I absolutely love what social media has been able to do because I feel like even this is a prime example. Thousands of us being able to gather isn't something that was really achievable before to this extent. And so it has helped build community and bolster community and allow us to be connected to people that share our values and allow us to expand what our values are as well. But at the same time, exactly like you were saying about AI, um, there is this moment of realizing that a lot of these technologies weren't built with us in mind as black and brown people, as people in different socioeconomic positions. And that's a scary reality because it is something that is so integrated into our daily life. And so part of why I feel like spaces like this are important is that it really is reclaiming these technologies to create safer spaces. Because for too long, it's been okay to use technologies to surveil us. It's been okay to use technologies to get information on us, but to not uh, bolster our abilities to use those technologies. I think COVID, um, sadly, has highlighted the technological disparities, knowing how many kids, I have so many educators in my family, and knowing how much they had to do because it wasn't a given that you had access to Wi-Fi and a computer. But in this time, that's exactly what you needed to be educated. And so those kind of disparities are things that definitely must be fixed in order to proceed in this digital age, which we know is our reality, um, in a way that is inherently inclusive. Yeah, it's so powerful. I was talking to one of our alumni yesterday, and she's majoring in mm -hmm. computer science. Uh, she's a, you know, a young Black woman majoring in computer science, and she mm -hmm. was saying that her university had gave them two choices. Either you could go back remote full-time, or you could go and then come back in November. And she said, you know, many mm. of myself and many of my friends of color are choosing to do remote because we don't want to come back and potentially infect our families because we know that COVID is disparately affecting black families. I mean, think about that, mm -hmm. right? And so there's so much uh, in terms of the equity lens in education that you raise that we need to talk about. One of your big passions um, that you've talked a lot about is voter engagement. Why is it so yes. important to rally your peers around that issue? Yeah, well, I have to start by saying voter engagement is by no means the only way to be civically engaged. I think the past couple months have proven the power of my generation and really expanding the potential of civic engagement to extend into art and rallies and STEM and all of these other fields. But the reason why voting um, has always been important to me before I could even vote uh, was because it was an intersection of all of the topics that we cared about. You know, being able to work in this voting space and the gatherings that I've held through We Vote Next um, is one of the only times in which I got to be in a space where this is an environmental activist, this is somebody standing up for immigration rights, this is somebody standing up for socioeconomic rights, this is somebody standing up for mental health and mental health care. And we're all in this one room because we know the ways in which um, our vote will affect all of these issues. And so part of it was knowing that I'm somebody like so many of my peers, where it's hard to decide exactly what issue you will prioritize in a world in which it does feel like we have so much to fix. And so voting was my 
way in which I could build a community in which we could talk about all of these issues. And it was a great entry point to see what action steps could we do. There's so much work to be done, but one of many things that you can do is actively engage with these political systems. Yeah, it's so it, it's such an important message. And I think a lot of and you see it with the protests, you know, from George Floyd's mm-hmm. murder, that like having all those young people on the streets demanding political change, we're finally having conversations about police reform that we've never had before. Um, and so the right. power of voice is incredible. Um, we are in this moment of, of real activism. And I think all of the young mm-hmm. people here at Girls Who Code are thinking about whether it's how do I build a technology tool to support BLM? How do I build something for climate change? How do I build something on voter engagement? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for, for so many, computer science was like a dude in a hoodie sitting in a basement somewhere building something. <laughs> That's not what it is. Yes. And so mm-hmm. if you could build one app right now in this moment, mm-hmm. What would it be? What would it solve? What do you think you'd call it? Okay. There are two things that come to mind. And this is when I'm going to need this community's expertise to actually build out these ideas. But the first thing that I have always thought about, which is super simple, is an app just called Global Citizen. Because I realize as somebody that travels often, the amount of spaces I go where I actually don't know what's happening in those communities, um, there is a disconnect between tourism and the experiences of citizens living in that area. And so part of it was just like, what's the most, if you had an interactive map um, and you were able to then talk about top news sources, but also what are the social media movements happening there? What are the most important issues in that area? But being able to have that in one succinct place in which you're also connected with other young people. And then I'm trying to think, the other one that I had in mind (laughs) was literally like, a task rabbit for voting in that not having other people vote in your place. But the one thing that I saw that was really prevalent, and I know many people speak about this, is that if you're an hourly employee, it's very hard to go to the polls and sit there for hours to cast your vote. Many times people are deciding between maintaining their job and being able to exercise this civic right. And as we know, if you break down who are the hourly employees, it affects our communities. It affects those of us living in the intersections. And so part of it was just the super simple, if on election days, people volunteer to stand in line for you. And so you could go, you'd have somebody stand in line. And then when it got closer to your time, you could go, but it would just minimize the amount of time you had to wait. Now, given COVID, I know most of us will be um, voting by mail, hopefully, but even still, we see that being attacked left and right. And so we want to make sure that every system is bolstered to make sure that everyone at least has the opportunity to go vote. I love that. I love that idea. All right, we have to build it because as you know, like for so many communities of color, they don't trust. There's a long history of not trusting, uh, you know, mail-in ballots. And so the many of them are going to mm-hmm. still try to come to the polls and you're right. And they need to be at work. And we're still not in a place where mm-hmm. we've given everybody the day off. I love that idea. It's so, <laughs> so smart. I love it. Okay. So we're going to take a couple of questions from our students. All right. Rhea from Tennessee. Okay. Rhea from Tennessee, how do you keep positive in the face of challenges? Great question for this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I really turn to a couple things. Music. Um, I feel like it's really important to revel in what makes us happy. I know, especially in times like these, there's so much facing us. And sometimes, quite honestly, the world can make you feel bad about being happy. 
in a time in which it feels like there's not much to be happy about. But I feel like the least we can do is take care of ourselves to be able to take care of others to the best of our ability. And that's something that I'm actually actively trying to practice because I'm not the best at it yet. Um, But I'm always turning to music because that's what makes me extremely happy. Family conversations, because whether it's your family, your friends, your chosen family and mentors, um, it's important to process what's happening uh, with everyone. I, I feel like the world, especially as a young girl, and then if you're a young girl of color and whatever intersection you layer on top of that, oftentimes the world can feel destabilizing, for lack of a better term. It feels like people are coming after you intentionally or unintentionally. And it's nice to, one, talk to people to say, you're not going crazy. (laughs) This is a real experience. But two, process how to move forward and have that support network. And then finally, I turn to history. I'm a total history nerd, um, and I've always been. But I think the thing that keeps me hopeful is acknowledging the progress that has been made and the fact that there are generations of people that poured into this world to such an extent that we experience the freedoms that we do now. It may still be imperfect. There may still be a lot of work to do, but I oftentimes turn to James Baldwin and other writers and speeches and such to just know that there are people that made it through. There are people that not only survived, but thrived. Um, And there are people that have poured into a generation, our generation, and they didn't even know us. They just knew that they wanted whoever inherited this world to live in a better world than they did. And so that is something that I try and keep with me as a reminder um, and as something to ground me in the fact that the work that we're doing is possible and is achievable. And there are some things that we're going to see in the next couple of years, some things that we'll see in our lifetime, and some things that we're going to have to leave to the future. I love your point. You know, joy is an act of resistance. And you you talk about mm-hmm. that in your recent interview. I sent it. I actually sent your passage to a team member because she was, we were talking about this and she was saying, I need mm-hmm. to go on a wellness, you know, break. But as an activist, I feel guilty. Like I feel guilty taking time right. for myself. And what is your point, right? It's like, if you, we are going to be fighting and we're in struggle. And unless we take a minute to breathe and to relax and to smile, we won't have the strength to go on. And I think it's a, it's a really mm-hmm. powerful lesson that you teach. So Anna from California, how do you grow from mistakes or learn when you don't necessarily succeed? Mm. Um, well, I try and take mistakes as the ultimate brainstorming moment for me. So I like try and macro, what was the mistake? Why did I feel like it's a mistake? Because you also have to acknowledge, was it a mistake to the world or was it a mistake to you? And I feel like if it's a mistake to you, then it's worth fixing. If it's something where it's in reaction to what people have said, it's worth acknowledging, okay, what are they saying and how can I be better? Um, Or is this just a social construct that I'm breaking? We were actually in a conversation the other day about this really broad topic of who gets to be outliers. And unfortunately, So many people in our communities are stuck in such rigid boxes that we are not allowed the space to be outliers, or we're not applauded in the same way to be outliers. And so breaking those constructs can feel uncomfortable to people because they're not used to people who look like us doing that, or they haven't normalized it, even though we've always been outliers, we've always been innovators. Um, And so it's, I think, one, analyzing what was the mistake? Why is it worth fixing? Why do you want to fix it? So it feels totally self-motivated. But then I also try and brainstorm. Um, Okay, well, what do I want to succeed and do better at? How do I want to go about it? We're recently reading this book in which um, the author was talking about the fact that it's about 1% changes. 
It's not about changing everything, but about every day making a 1% change. And that aggregate change will become something very tangible. Um, So trying to learn that and also being okay with the fact that you will make that mistake again, (laughs) it is pretty likely. That is something I've had to come to terms with. Uh, It's not to say that you're not growing as a human being, but it's just the reality. Um, But hopefully next time you make that mistake better, for lack of a better term. Um, And that's the process, I think, of growing up that I'm definitely still working on. Because as much as I say this, I can't say that I don't have a hard time when I make a mistake. I can't say that I don't sit in my room and sulk for a minute or feel like this is all my fault. But I'm trying to be better at what that recovery process looks like. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, because failure just can't be a privilege for men right? Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, you only learn from it. I mean, I, when I've, I've lost two elections, I'm like, I always say I'm like a serial failed politician, but it's <laughs> almost like failure is the biggest gift because like we, you don't, you wouldn't be on this journey, right? If you didn't make mistakes and learn from mm-hmm. that. Uh, I think it's like what competitive athletes really understand because they have like a coach who's saying, do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. Right. Uh, and you're building that bravery muscle. Yeah, I mean, even thinking about the world of startups, that is built on failure. That is built on the fact that many of these things won't succeed, but there are two things that happen. One will succeed, and everyone else who doesn't succeed goes back to the lab, redesigns, redoes it, and goes back out again. That's right. It's like a scientist. You have to like try your experiment and do it again and do it again and do it again. And, mm-hmm. and I, I just think sometimes as girls, we because we were raised to be perfect – like we weren't taught that. And so I think it's, it's so important to like, and I think it's just never too late to relearn that and to recognize that Mm -hmm. you can fail and try. And the only way you learn is you learn from your mistakes. Um, Yes. So Lena from Chicago, I'm very curious to answer this question too. Who is your role model and why? I have so many. Okay. I'm going to go. I feel like to list a few. I've always said my mother, and not just because we're in the same house and she's a room over, but because not only are we very similar human beings, um, she's really helped me figure out what it means to enter spaces unapologetically. Um, Being in spaces in which we are used to being the minority in every sense of the term, in most everything that we do. Um, We're used to being the only team that brings people of color onto projects. The amount of spaces I've entered where it's like, if our team wasn't here, there would be no diversity in this room when it comes to ethnicity, religious identity, any identity. Um, And with that being said, I think she's um, helped bolster in me the fact that we deserve to be there. And just because we aren't present in the room doesn't mean that our opinion doesn't matter. But the other thing that she's taught me is that the importance of every opportunity I get is the fact that I get to hold the door open. And so whether it's change that people get to see publicly or if it's just something that we know we're doing privately, the importance of me being able to enter a new space is that I now get to hold that door and bring other people in with us. The goal is never to be the only one in there. And that's been the most impactful because I've seen the way that she's done that on huge macro levels with people, bringing in new executives, providing new opportunities. And I've seen her do that in the most smallest of ways in which um, if somebody runs into her and out and about and even says something about being inspired by her platform, she'll take the time and be like, oh, what are you doing? And be like, oh, well, that makes me think of this resource, that resource. Have you checked this out, that out? And the amount of people that circle back to her to say like, thanks for this suggestion. This really helped. And so to know it can be as simple as giving your time 
and just being present and in conversation. And it can be as big as knowing, like, we want to make infrastructural change. How do we do this? Yeah, I've met your mom and I can attest to it. I think she's already even done that for me and for Girls Who Code. It's like, <laughs> she has this amazing aura and energy, right? It's like karmic. Mm-hmm. And I think when you put that mm-hmm. energy into the world, it circles back. So it's powerful. And you have the same spirit. Thank you. So Sasha from Connecticut, as a person of color, how do you hope to Mm -hmm. encourage young people of color who want to be involved in careers that aren't as diversified? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I've always said it's about finding your support network. I feel like it's the only reason that we've made it to this point, too. Um, Oftentimes, especially in non-diverse settings, there is a false narrative of competition. And that can be super undermining because the one thing that I know about dominant culture is that they share trade secrets with each other. There is um, a leg up in knowing that you have an education, you have resources of people that are willing to pour into you. And so the idea of competition somehow only applies to us when we enter these rooms. But when you break that apart, suddenly you have this well of information, a well of people who are willing to give to you in any way that they know how. And in turn, it's your job to continue to do the same for others. But when I think about our acting world, the production world, any space that I've been in, even the space of being socially engaged, the only reason I think I'm able to do this is the fact that I have mentors and people that I can call to be like, I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this. These are the places I'm still learning. These are the places that make me uncomfortable. This is where I feel very comfortable. Um, But having those mentors and being okay to lean into that um, is really important. And in turn, I feel like it's my job when people turn to me to be like, oh, well, have you considered this resource or let me connect you with this person? And so I, I guess I say all that to say, don't be discouraged. I know that the work is real. I know that the daily experience may feel strange, but I always encourage people to do the research because I promise you we're everywhere. Our, our co- communities are everywhere. And oftentimes it just takes a little digging to find those people in your communities who have already started trailblazing in that area and to begin to learn from them. And then even amongst your peer group, um, as we live in a a more and more diverse world, it's important to be able to be in active community with your peers and go into these experiences together. Yeah, it's so true. Like every time I, if I can't do a brand, you know, deal or a board, I literally immediately find a woman of color and say, how about her? And do you want to do this? And mm-hmm. That's like, to me, that's like, what's the point of having power or a platform if you don't elevate others? Mm-hmm. So Mallory from Wisconsin, I love this question. What hopes do you have for our generation in the future? I was, okay. So I recently wrote about what it means to turn 20 right now. And a part of that was what hopes do I have for our future? And I turned to the words of Audre Lorde in saying that the master's tools never will never undo the master's house. Um, and I think when I'm looking at everyone, and I, I wish I could see everybody here, but when I'm looking at my generation as a large group, we're creating new tools that I think generations before couldn't have even imagined. And so the disassembling process of the house that was not inclusive Um, has been something that's been going on for centuries, decades, generations. What's really inspiring is that there's this innovation that is occurring right now in every field and being able to optimize our passions. And I think that's what's been most inspiring is that it's not about all of us doing the same thing, being the same, but leaning into what our passions are and then figuring out how to utilize that for the greater good. 
Um, and so when I think of our generation, I feel like there's so much change that is going to occur um, as we continue to gain access to resources and be able to have these macro conversations. I believe our ability to multitask will only come in handy now because it's not about prioritizing um, civil rights, but it's about expanding this conversation to say, how do we build the most inclusive world? And if we're going to do that, we have to talk about environmental justice in the same way that we talk about justice with immigration rights and every other intersection, because we know that ultimately, um, when we're not talking about all of these things, um, the environment disproportionately affects our communities anyway, uh, and, and vice versa. And so I love the idea that we are all multitaskers that get to come together to say for too long, we focused on just one issue. And what we get to do now is everyone who has their specific field of interest gets to embrace their one issue and then come together to figure out how we build a world in which we're considering all of these things at once. I love it. Uh, one of my favorite things I read during COVID is Arundhati Roy's uh, article about how we're in a, the middle of a portal, right? From from inequity mm. to equity. And that like everything that's mm. happening right now is an acceleration. I firmly believe that you are going to be one of the leaders of this new world and you are going to continue to push us towards the light. And so I am so grateful to you. And I know all of the young women that are listening right now are so grateful to you and are learning from you. And we just want to continue to lift you up and to learn from you and thank you to wish you the best. Thank you so much for blessing our community. No, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Hopefully we can do something in person once global health is restored. Um, but really honored to be here. And I wish I could see everybody, but I'm, I'm waving and I'm giving you a virtual hug right now. <laughs> We're waving and giving you a virtual hug too. Thank you, Yara. All right. Thank you. Bye. That was Yara Shahidi, an incredible activist and actor. She joined me as part of the Girls Who Code Summer Speaker Series. Thank you to all the students who tuned in for their thoughtful questions. And thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the Brave Not Perfect podcast wherever you listen, so you never miss an episode. You can hear new conversations about bravery every other Tuesday. See you soon. Hi, I'm your executive producer, Oliver Ash Klein. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Today's episode was also made possible by my co-producers, Tanya Zaparonik and Charlotte Stone. And of course, our fearless team leader, Deborah Singer. Andrea Jordan, Rashma Sajani, Ashley Gramby, Gloria Noel, Aaron Page, Zenzele Skylark, Alisa Dwyer, and Raven Abreu also contributed to the making of this episode. See you in two weeks.